My name is William Menard, and this is The American Immigrant, the podcast about immigration in America. My guest today is Nigel Duara. He is a correspondent for the Los Angeles Times. He's based in Phoenix, Arizona, and covers issues related to the U.S.-Mexico border. Mr. Duara, thank you for joining me today. Oh, thanks so much for having me. All right, so before we discuss some of uh, your recent articles, uh, I, of course, need to ask you about the election of Donald Trump. It's on everybody's minds. Uh, he's perhaps the most anti-immigrant presidential candidate in American history, and at least, or at least in the last several generations. Four states in the U.S. border Mexico. California and New Mexico went to Clinton. Arizona, which you cover uh, and you're based in, and Texas went to Trump. What does this election say about our country's view of immigration, including our border policy? Well, and that's a, that's a great question. I mean, I, I think that the attention that, that you noted, the state's going sort of, if you look at a map, blue, red, blue, red, right? And California, of course, given its voters, is going to go blue. Uh, and Arizona was considered possibly maybe a toss-up. But if we ask why, what does this election say about immigration, at least in Arizona, where, where Trump did pretty well, I mean, he won the state, um, it was it was definitely, it seemed to be an, an endorsement of the, of the continued policies um, that, that he sort of enunciated and endorsed when he gave a speech here, a speech where Joe Arpaio had, you know, was on stage with him, uh, and he said, we need to beef up the Border Patrol. We need to and Joe, Ar- sorry, but Joe Arpaio, for anybody who doesn't know, is the uh, the sheriff in, the, in Maricopa County where Phoenix is, and he's been very anti-immigrant. We'll actually get to him later in the podcast, but sorry, go on. For sure. And, and so, so what, it, what it tended to, to say is that if you're in a true border state uh, that's not California, basically, then, then you are supporting this idea of stronger borders and, and, and the candidate that was endorsed by the Border Patrol, again, who's Donald Trump and who made all these various promises of what he was going to give the Border Patrol should he be elected. So New Mexico, I think, is a special case. Of course, the border in New Mexico is very mountainous and is very rarely crossed. So New Mexico is a place that doesn't quite have the same kind of border crisis as do Texas and as does Arizona. Um, And the influx of of migrants and the deaths in the desert and all of the sort of incumbent costs that come with that. So I think that's a good part of what we're seeing. So do you think that this then became a, a vote? between people who were directly affected by border crossings and, um, you know, some segment of the population who just were fed up with it versus California and New Mexico where they're not, they're not seeing it firsthand as much. Is, is that what it came down to? In a lot of ways, you know, I think that California would see, you know, that, that firsthand migration and, of course, New Mexico wouldn't. Um, you know, it, it's tough to, to, to take what the politics of what might actually be happening at the border and then translate it to, you know, a voter in Kansas. Um, what is more likely is that places, and we've sort of, you know, written about this before, the further you are from the border, oftentimes the harder your immigration stand is. And so, you know, a lot of times it's somebody like Chris Kobach, who is the Secretary of State in Kansas, writing a, a, a you know, stronger borders bill um, and having that be implemented in Arizona. A lot of snowbirds in Arizona who have spent 
most of their lives somewhere else or who only live here part of the year are a lot of the conservative voters um, in Phoenix who are supporting, as you mentioned, that candidate Arpaio, or who are supporting, um, you know, the, the idea of stronger borders, and they were certainly supporting Donald Trump. So his election, I don't know if it's a straight endorsement of the policies of, you know, the Border Patrol or, or immigration, but it's definitely a pushback against the idea of, you know, um, delayed, uh, excuse me, DAPA and DACA, uh, who I'm, I'm sure you're listeners are familiar with, but, but again, right, the deferred action that, program for, for children so that they could come here and, or they could stay here and they could work and, and kind of not live, um, in, in complete secrecy and everything. Yeah. And, and those programs. And then of course the, the same thing is we remember the famous, um, what is it? Skittles here, M&Ms here, uh, bowl of when one of them's poison. And it seemed like, like in, in that argument was used to say, if you take a number of Syrian immigrants and only one or two of them are, are, are you know, potential um, terrorists or what have you, that that's still more than you would ever take. You wouldn't eat a poison, one poison M&M if it was poison in a whole bowl, you wouldn't eat the whole bowl. So that's the argument that was used by, I think, Eric Trump tweeted that out. Yeah. And then, but, but those arguments, they hold weight. And, and that is, as we've seen, the sort of global nationalist fervor, you know, take hold in, 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 England and to a lesser degree of a pun in, in France, you do see that these arguments, um, they carry weight and people believe them. And and so if, if, if enough folks on the border, and especially they tend to be ranchers on the border, saying, you know, we've got a crisis here and it's dangerous and we need to do something, then that's all that some folks in Kansas might need to hear to vote for stronger border policy. But what's interesting is that we, we talk a lot about Joe Arpaio, but he lost his reelection in Maricopa County in the, you know, it wasn't the whole state that was voting. It was just his county that was voting where, where Phoenix is. So it's, I, I believe it's the largest county, right? Or by population, right? So what is it that allowed Trump to win the state, but Arpaio to lose his seat? You know, and, and, and that's a great question about both the state of Arizona, the unique nature of this election, I think, and just frankly fatigued with Arpaio. So just to go over real quick, Arpaio was uh, a sheriff who, who was in office uh, for, depending on how you want to define it, since 1992, basically. He was elected in 92, took office in 93. And for about 10 years, he made his name as being this tough-on-crime sheriff who would deny you know, but uh, he, he, would, he would get prisoners um, sort of second-class meat, which you've ever seen is very discolored and gross-looking. Uh, he would, you know, put them in outside tents as, as their jails, even when it got to 120 degrees outside. So he was this kind of guy that was known as being this quote-unquote toughest sheriff in America. Then he pivoted to the idea of strong borders and started rounding up and profiling Latinos and was charged with it uh, by, the, by the Department of Justice of, 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 of handing down inequitable um, justice. So anyway, he lost, and but Trump still carried it. And what that was in Phoenix, uh, political scientists are saying now was, number one, people are, are fed up of Arpaio. His policies were, again, found to be inequitable applications of justice that target Latinos. Uh, he has long made a <laughs> political enemies list and has stuck to it, uh, even going so far as to charging you know, newspaper publishers in the middle of the night and coming in on raids and, and arresting them, or um, more recently, um, you know, going after the, the board of supervisors candidates who he thought opposed him. So a lot of 
a lot of enemy making and a, and, and, a, and a lot of cost to the city and the state that had to bear the, the cost of, of his legal defense. And so after, you know, 24 years of this, 23 years of this, uh, essentially his base abandoned him. And, and it seems like maybe even declined to write him in or, or declined to, i sorry, vote for him um, or in some other way expressed their preference for Trump and for conservative candidates, which is happening in Arizona, but did not retain our pile. So it could have been a, a not necessarily a repudiation of what he believes, but a repudiation of him personally. I, I, I think that's absolutely right. I think people, were, were, when they started hearing it's $142 million in defenses, in legal defenses and settlements have been paid out in his ter- tenure, and he forgot to or did not decline to investigate some 400 sex abuse cases, child sex abuse cases in some cases, um, you know, while, while, while refocusing on immigration. And again, this is very small piece immigration he's actually going after. These were lots of arrests of migrants. These were not arrests of employers. These were not, um, you know, the sort of large-scale raid that would shut down a company. They, they, they would come in and, 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 and make these small-scale, almost the equivalent of hand-to-hand drug transaction raids on these migrants. And eventually people started saying, well, where's the return on our, on our investment? What are we actually getting back for these show raids? I, I Just um, related to that, but also to the election, there was a report of, of hundreds of Maricopa County high school students walking out a, in protest of Joe Arpaio. And I don't know if that was simultaneously a protest of Trump as well, you know, as well. But from your own um, research, from your own reporting, is there the divide that seems to exist between young and older voters? Is this uh, is this a real example of that? No, that's an interesting question. I mean, here, to be sure, it's 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 extreme. It, it, yes, it, it, it is that divide. And, and, and it's extreme for, for, for a lot of reasons. I mean, you know, the older folks in Maricopa County, um, they live by and large in the suburbs that ring Phoenix, um, like Glendale and Surprise and Sun Lakes and all these places. And and the the younger generation is, of course, not related to the older folks. The younger generation in Phoenix is is, is um, Hispanic in large part, um, uh, you know, majority minority. Uh, it is, uh, they, they are young and, and they were motivated to, to vote, it seems, this election by, in addition to Arpaio, the, uh, there was a ballot measure, recreational marijuana, which is popular with young voters, and raising the minimum wage, which is popular with young voters and Latino voters. So those things, you do see almost that divide that we saw nationally, and of course that divide that we saw in Brexit. And oftentimes when you have a more nationalistic victory that you see that older co- cohort voting. And that's what's been happening. That's who's been keeping our pile in office, is that older cohort. Um, but if you map it out and say what's going to look like in 10 years, the map looks very different. The map looks very different for the presidential election. It looks very different for the uh, for the for the county races here. Um, so it will be interesting to see what comes through next. All right, I, I want to get a little bit into what you some work that you've been doing uh, recently. Uh, you you've actually been taking several trips to the to the border and, and been doing some research on border crossings and and things like that. What what can you tell us about that? Sure. And what we're investigating right now is the idea that how complete is the is the 
count of um, migrants who die en route to um, to the border? How, how accurate is the count or, or die after they've reached the border and get across, um, but, but die in the desert? What is that count like? Because, you know, human rights advocates, uh, civil rights advocates say that this is kind of a, a, a low-boiling um, mass casualty event, that if in any other situation you were to tell somebody that 170 people had died um, in one place, um, that it would be unimaginable, unthinkable. The cameras would be descending. But because it happened over the period of a year, that we were able to ignore it. And part of that is that the Border Patrol has touted their statistics as an example, especially the declining number of people dying. They've touted that as an example of their policy succeeding. But we are starting to investigate or are investigating the possibility that their numbers and their counts are actually off, and they're off significantly. And if they are off significantly, then it's difficult to imagine how they can claim the policies are working if they're not producing accurate numbers. And they will admit that the numbers they provide are incomplete, but they will still say that those numbers are therefore uh, to be counted on as an example of their success. So we kind of need them to make up their mind. What's causing the numbers to be off? I mean, do you believe that it's something that they're willfully putting the numbers down or are they ignoring no. ignoring no. what's actually going on? No, it, it doesn't appear that, that they are that they're this is kind of willful. I mean, it's 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 essentially a translational issue. What they're saying at the outset in the collection of the numbers is, hey look, uh, this is just the number of people that we've encountered or had to help out or made calls on, on, on their behalf by the Border Patrol. So it's just our numbers. But but the issue is more a translational one in taking those numbers and then saying, having a different arm of the Border Patrol saying, hey, look, our policies are working because of these numbers. So there's a disconnect there. And in, in, in communicating that message to the American public saying, look at this, it's working, uh, and, and here's why. So uh, it, it seems to me that, that, that it's, it's, it's going to be crucial to not only to, to get them to answer questions on their methodology, but to also get an idea of how far these conversations go when the border patrol makes these assurances that their policies are working and fewer people are dying who's listening and which lawmakers are listening and and who's making decisions based on these these numbers okay when you say you mentioned 170 border deaths over the period of a year which is really startling um what are the numbers like now so for instance since say january 1st do you have any idea about how many people have died this year crossing the border? Here's, here's the best answer I can give you is no, we don't. And I will be one of the people who will tell you that we can't. Some people will tell you that you can get a definitive number. But the, 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 the art of doing that is not only to ask the Border Patrol, but to ask every individual county where people are found dead, where they find dead migrants. And that's primarily going to be uh, maybe parts of California, certainly all of Arizona, uh, a little smidgen of New Mexico, and then a big part of Texas. So if, if that's, we don't necessarily know because of the nature of the record keeping and because of basically the idea that no one is asking every single county to turn over their numbers. It's much more uh, it's like the FBI's uh, uniform crime statistics. It's basically what the police agencies will tell them as opposed to what their people are going out and finding, if that makes a difference. So then it's the – what I think what you're asking for then is for Border Patrol, which is already the largest law enforcement 
agency in the in, in the country to actually essentially do their job and go go to these counties, contact these counties and ask them how many people, how many bodies they found at the border and instead of essentially waiting and, and taking the information that's given to them. Right, and, and, and just to clarify, you know, just like I wouldn't expect the FBI to go to every single police agency, I can't expect the Border Patrol to spend time querying 254 different uh, county sheriff's offices just in Texas, especially sometimes they keep their records on a pen and a pad. So what would be more useful, at least at the outset, is if they did what the FBI did, or does, which is when they, re- when they release those uniform crime statistics, they have a big disclaimer that says, look, these numbers are incomplete for the following reasons. Bing, 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 bing. That would be a start. That's essentially what would be incumbent on the Border Patrol to do just to explain that their stats are sort of not complete and not meant to be interpreted as such, which you wouldn't know unless you start bothering them. But don't you feel that the comparison is it's a little bit different because the um, FBI is a, you know, it's a law enforcement agency that generally enforces federal uh, crimes that investigates federal crimes, and that there are state police agencies that investigate um, state crimes. The difference here is that immigration enforcement is by law left to the federal government, and the enforcement arm of it is Customs and Border Patrol. That is their that's their job. So th- when the FBI releases statistics about crimes. Um, or, or you know, murder statistics, or or what have you. There is the the lo- the localities are actually dealing with that and enforcing it. Whereas here, that's not really what the state does. It's the job of the federal government. So don't they have more of an obligation to know what's going on? Um, when when they encounter a a body in the desert, um, it immediately goes to. Uh, to the county, and the counties are the ones who deal with with remains. So, in this particular instance, I, I certainly take your point. Um, but but when it comes to dead bodies, that is almost exclusively the province of the uh, medical examiner and the individual um, county uh, in which the body is found. Um, so that becomes a question of you know when they find a body. Let's just say they find anybody. Um, you know, like let's just say it's not the border patrol, but just hikers or somebody comes across the desiccated corpse in the desert. Well, at first you don't know whether that's a migrant or or citizen or what have you. So that person is then taken to the medical examiner's office. Well, uh, they can do forensic and they can and they do do forensic analysis to try and determine based on body type and the clothes and the bones and all that stuff, they can determine where the person came from and then maybe assign that to a larger database saying, well, it turns out the body we found in April, uh, this is now, you know, November, it's, uh, it's, it was this guy. It was a person we believe is from Mexico. It was what have you. So that's the difference is this is not a case like other times the Border Patrol where they're very difficult to get to talk, especially if they shoot somebody uh, and kill somebody. It becomes almost impossible to get them to talk about that. This is a case where it's more a coordination issue, where you're finding, you know, X, which is the large sample of bodies you find all over, and of X, Y is the number of, you know, uh, migrants that are there. So that smaller sample size is a part of the bigger sample, but it's sometimes tough to know what part of it it is, whether that's a migrant or not. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Although what you just uh, kind of mentioned brings up a similar or um, another, maybe it's just another problem, which is that let's say 
a Border Patrol officer shoots somebody, which obviously does happen. And you said that it's very difficult to get information out of them about that. Is this another situation where they essentially don't have the same oblig- do they, do they have the same obligations to turn over information that say a state agency um, that's investigating a murder, uh, like a police involved shooting would have? Is there a different level of communication there? Um, you know, when we're trying to write about these, I wrote a story in, I don't remember what month it was, sometime earlier this year, that, that talked about that exact issue. Is here's a shooting in Arizona on, you know, private land where somebody wasn't killed but was, you know, fate, uh, well, shot and critically uh, wounded by, by two Border Patrol agents on a chase. Now, if, if it had been, you know, the Cochise County Sheriff's Office that did the shooting or, or, or the city of, of Eager, Arizona did the shooting, yeah, within, within a couple of days, uh, at, the, at, the out, at the worst, we would at least probably know identities and, and, or we're investigating identities and notifying next to Canada, blah, 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 blah. But the Border Patrol, much again, to go back to the example, like the FBI, when there's an investigation underway, it is very difficult. And this is something to their credit that they've been trying to get better at. Uh, at least the Washington you know, headquarters have been trying to get better at is, is saying, how soon do we notify the public and what do we tell them? So they have expanded a little bit under direct orders from their, from their relatively new um, uh, chief, who's uh, Gil Kurlikowski, um, that they want to, within 24 hours, at least get some kind of statement out there. And within, I think, another... Oh, few days after that, you know, get a more complete picture out there. But the level with which they comply with that, the level to which I can personally harangue them about, you know, individual shootings that may not happen to my beat, is somewhat limited. And we, as reporters, I will say, have probably given them a little too much leeway when it comes to this stuff. And if we don't hold their feet to the fire on every instance of it, um, you know, they're going to continue to hold information back. And that's true of any government agency. That's true of any, any, any group you're trying to watch. But in this particular case, you've got an agency that went from very small to very, very large, as you mentioned, one of the largest police agencies uh, in the country. Um, and it happened very quickly. And so they're not really used to taking a lot of these questions or having to answer them because they haven't been around that long. What do you personally plan to do? How do you plan to change your approach to, to investigating this? Sure, and, and, and sometimes it's honestly a question of time, um, you know, expenditure and, and, and how much time you're, you're going to expend on getting details from the shootings, and sometimes it's a question of just figuring out when the shootings happen. So, you know, one thing that's helpful is to have a rotating FOIA request in with the department just saying every month, you know, send me the numbers on if anybody was shot, you know, if any Border Patrol agent was involved in any kind of a... Uh, potentially fatal incident. Use a deadly force. Forget if it's a gun. If they had to use deadly force for some reason or another, tell me where and when. And so that's something that could hopefully start yielding consistent results and kind of generating something that would equal, you know, a report. Uh, then the question is trying to hunt them down in the individual circumstances in which something happened and find out, you know, because a shooting, every shooting is going to be a unique situation. Every shooting is going to be, you know, uh, particular to that certain time and place. So there's not going to be uh, a general form they can issue. And, and it may involve, you know, the sheriff's office or it may involve some other agency that they were partnered with. So the point being that every one of these, every one of these individual um, engagements is going to require, you know, the kind of cops reporting, shoe other reporting that 
sports reporter in Des Moines running around at night trying to figure out, you know, who shot who and when. And so that takes time and that takes effort. And sometimes, you know, that's, it, it may not seem quite worth it to, to expend that kind of an effort on, you know, one shooting when, some, uh, when a bunch of other stuff is happening. So I think to answer your question, yeah, we need to do more as reporters. Obviously, we need the thing we can do is to demand more transparency from the agencies we cover. I think that's the solution: is not to have, you know, one or two people chasing their tails and you know trying to illustrate the issue. Maybe do that at first, but the solution is to hopefully have the agencies be more responsive and more forthcoming with the information without compromising the investigation. We certainly understand there's elements of it that can't be compromised, but it becomes difficult to align that with reality when other agencies at a smaller level are able to release the information very quickly. That certainly sounds like a, a, a really good goal, though it seems like it's going to be difficult. Um, can you tell us about one instance, one, one shooting that you found particularly compelling or just heartbreaking or whatever the case is, like one story that, that's really affected you um, in covering this issue? I mean, certainly, I, I wouldn't probably use um, uh, the terms, you know, it wasn't necessarily heartbreaking or anything like that, um, but, you know, because those sort of convey some kind of opinion, but but I mean, I, I think that, uh, you know, the shooting, I, I didn't cover it at the time because it was before I was on the beat, but um, but there was a shooting of a, of a young man um, uh, through the border fence. Uh, and I went down and wrote about it in uh, the city of Nogales, Nogales, Arizona, shot through to the city of Nogales, Mexico, Sonora. And, um, and he died. And it's pretty, pretty famous at this point. Um, New York Times also did a deep dive on it. And um, th- th- that, was, that was difficult the only time you write about, you know, about a, a child dying. Um, but, you know, um, trying to, that, that case is going to be litigated going forward. And, and it's unclear exactly. Um, you know, how much protection this Border Patrol agent is going to get, although it certainly seems like the union is, is wheeling out the big guns. Um, so the, the question is going to be, you know, how do they represent this individual who was shot? Uh, when I say represent, I mean, how, how do they depict him in court? Um, is it going to be the same way they have so far, which is to say that an agent firing a gun across the border the person who's hit, if they're on the other side of the border and not a U.S. citizen, they essentially have no rights. Uh, so that part will be an interesting argument, I think, to be made in front of a jury, if it does come to that, um, to essentially say that this this person who was killed is, for legal purposes, for legal purposes, a non-entity, that it was like shooting into the dark. And I think that that will be... Um, that argument and, and how it lands will be, I think, very reflective, maybe, of of how we do think about the people who are, you know, right across the border. How old was the kid? Uh, I believe he was uh, he was fourteen. I would have to go back and check my notes. Wow. Uh, um, and uh, he was coming home from basketball practice, and agents on the U.S. side of the fence, uh, including one named Lonnie Schwartz, uh, were were getting hit with rocks, and the rockings can be. Uh, extremely dangerous for 
agents on the uh, on the U.S. side of the fence. I mean, it sounds like a joke, like kids throwing temples. Some of these suckers are bigger than baseballs, and if they hit you in the wrong place, they hit a dog uh, in the wrong place, it can really be, be bad news. Um, so they had gotten rocks thrown at them, and uh, one of the agents uh, responded with gunfire, uh, aiming down um, through the fence, which is about 10 feet. 10 or 12 feet higher on the U.S. side, uh, aiming down and firing, um, and I think it struck uh, this kid um, some eight times, I believe. It's in our report. Um, so anyway, that's that's kind of where, that was, I believe, in 2012, in October 2012, and, uh, and uh, the case is going to go forward, should be early next year. Well, and I think that, that, what you just said, first of all, that he was shot eight times, uh, second of all, that he was behind a fence. I think that really speaks to uh, much of the discussion that we've been having a- around the country about uh, police-involved shootings. And I think the the thing that immediately pops out to me is, first of all, um, why why is he shooting eight times uh, when the the kid the other kids these kids just have rocks? I mean, I know that can be dangerous, but the difference between a rock and a gun is pretty substantial. And I think the second thing is, just practically speaking, I know it's your job to patrol the border, but why why couldn't the officers just walk away? I mean, there's a fence. What what What's preventing them from, from simply removing themselves from throwing distance from these rocks? And this became a particular uh, area of, of concern and discussion. Uh, when when the uh, border patrol sort of um, did and didn't hand down new guidelines, I think is the fairest way to say it on 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 uh, on potentially fatal uh, confrontations uh, slash you know um, use of deadly force, and the question became uh, exactly what you just asked: Should you just remove yourself? And the clarification they gave is fascinating because it says in essence. Yes, you should remove yourself unless you feel like you can't and you have to respond with deadly force. That's not a direct quote, of course, but that's essentially what it said. And, and when that came out, the union, the, B, the Border Patrol Union, came out and said, look, see, nothing's different. Nothing is different. And they weren't wrong. There was no actual different guidance of when they are facing what, again, they think they, they consider rocks to be deadly force, and it's hard to disagree. But they say that, you know, there's no difference. And so if you're taking, you know, fire in this case, uh, you can respond and, and you should remove yourself if you can. But if you can't, then don't. And for some of these guys, I, I think the idea of getting yourself out of the situation would be akin to the idea of retreat. And that doesn't sit well with the kind of men that I've spoken to at the Border Patrol and women. That's definitely a difficult and, and controversial issue and one that doesn't really seem to have an easy solution. All right. Uh, why don't we finish our episode on a little bit of a lighter note and, and talk about how your own family came to the United States and their immigration story, um, which is what I like to do with a lot of my guests. And we, we talked a little bit before the show and I found it interesting. So why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about how your family got here? Yeah, sure. Um, so my folks had um, had left uh, India together um, and went to uh, to London. This is in the early mid seventies. And London, you know, if I still ask my dad today, you know, London seventy five to seventy seven is you know one of the most fun times he's ever had. You can imagine it was 
rock and roll. It was awesome there. Um, but they are two brown people. So London and, and England in the 70s was, especially if you were like they are in, in, a, in, a, in a professional capacity, they're doctors. It just wasn't a place where you're going to advance very quickly, if at all. And they were learning that pretty much every day. It was being reinforced every day. And, and, and whatever latent racism we see today was much less latent then. It was much more in your face. So um, they, they decided that, that America was going to be the, the place to go. The United States is the place to go. And they started applying around, applying around, and seeing, you know, we're going to go to the, apply to 100 hospitals each, you know, and like I think two or three of them offered both of them are at least in the same city. So they hopped on a plane and went to St. Louis in 1977, which was a very, <laughs> I would say, challenging place for two new city folk immigrants to show up to uh, in 1977. This is a place where the factory jobs are going out, where uh, crime was on the rise. Uh, it was it was tough conditions. It was a real welcome to America uh, few years there, I think. So uh, they got over it. They got through it. They're okay. But, but definitely that's how they came here. But your grandparents had a kind of an interesting story of how they uh, how they ended up together, also, right? Yeah, the grandparents one is the, is the that, that's the movie version, definitely. They they were my, my grandpa was uh, Hindu, he was Indian from Assam, which is in northeast India. He came to England for continuing studies in the forties, and uh, well, not forties, I guess, in uh, yeah, in the early forties. And uh, my uh, my grandma was uh, was Austrian and, and, and Jewish. Um, so that was not a good time to be either Austrian or Jewish, and so she went to uh, London. Um, uh, taking him, her and her mother were taken by the Rothschilds. Her her siblings were uh, either uh, uh, killed in concentration camps, or a couple of them um, uh, made it to uh, the Italians, who 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 weren't killing tons of people, were just kind of imprisoning Jews. So it was a little bit easier. Anyway, um, my uh, my grandpa, they, they met, they dated, they were everything's fine. My grandpa decides it's probably not going to work out. I'm going to go continue my studies in. Ireland. So he gets on a boat, and it is going west to Ireland, right, like northwest, and it gets bombed during uh, a British, or excuse me, a German raid. Uh, blow, boat gets blown to bits, and he gets a life raft back to England and says, well, that's probably a sign. So he married the uh, Austrian Jewish woman and took her back to India. The rest is history. That's a great story. Um, first of all, how many, how many people made it from the boat? That That's he was a great on. question. I, I need to know more about the boat. I need to really research this. I, I, I people, you know, and I, I, I do owe it to them to go back and figure out which boat and what time, and whether this is some apocryphal family story. But, but it sounds real. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I'd love to know more details, and maybe that'd be a fun one to write sometimes as a memoir. Did you talk to your parents, um, or I, I, I don't know if your your grandparents are still alive, but. Um, did you talk to either of them about what they've thought of Trump as, as um, immigrants? Oh, well, yeah, I mean, my parents or my grandma are not fans, but that's, that's much more a product of being American liberals than anything else. I don't think it has anything to do with the fact they're immigrants, honestly. <laughs> really? They weren't, they weren't offended by his stance on oh, immigration. Oh God! Oh my God! No, no, no. I, I probably should just decline to say at this point. But like, yeah, they're horrified. Of course, they're terrified and they're horrified and everything. But that's you know, that's that's their that's their position. Um, uh, and uh, you know, they they've earned the right to have their own views. 
Right, right. Well, I understand that you're a um, you're a reporter, and and you got to keep your neutrality, uh, of course. Um, all right, so we'll have to leave it there. I think um, once again, uh, Nigel Duar is a correspondent for the Los Angeles Times, based in um, Phoenix, Arizona, and covering issues related to the U.S.-Mexico border. Uh, Nigel, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thanks for the opportunity. This is great. Really appreciate it. All right. My name is William Menard, and this is The American Immigrant. <laughs>